Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Every week, we strive to present the truth and love of Jesus to the heart of our community through music, art, and public speaking. Today, we continue with our study through 1 Corinthians, and we hope you are encouraged by this message. Let's get started. So good morning, everyone. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Jeff. I am one of the pastors here at the church, and I want to ask you to turn your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are continuing our study in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I want to Read verses probably 12 through 34. I'm not 100% certain how far we'll actually get today. Um, We're going to be pressed for time with everything that's going on. Um, One of the things while you're making your way to 1 Corinthians 15, okay, and if you don't have a Bible underneath the seat around you, you can find a Bible and you can turn to page 961. That will help you, okay? So as you're turning there, um, one of the things that I get to do in my role as a pastor is I get to officiate weddings, And if you know me, I have this love-hate relationship with weddings, right? I love weddings because I love what it represents. It's truly a picture of um, God loving us, that we get to be the the bride of Christ one day, that we get to, he's the bridegroom, and it's just sort of a picture of that. Paul talks about that in the New Testament. And I love seeing two people in love, or so they think, (laughs) getting married. Uh, I'm just, I'm not jaded, I'm just a realist is what I'm saying. One of the things I love to do is to teach people that love is not an emotion, but it's a choice. And and marriage is but the first of many choices to stay together that you'll make the entirety of your marriage, yes? So uh, I have this love-hate relationship. I love the weddings. I hate them also because they they fall on the weekend. Like the only day I don't get to work, I get to go work at a wedding. I'm just throwing it out there. So, uh, But as I I kind of uh, counsel couples getting married, it makes me think of my own wedding. My anniversary is next Saturday. Stacy and I will have been married 23 years on Saturday. That's a wonderful thing for us. Yes. And I was thinking about when I asked her to marry me, and I was so anxious and nervous. I had the ring on me, and we went to dinner, um, into a play. I know, trying to be romantic. <laughs> um, and and the whole time I kept doing this, thinking I was going to lose it. It was going to be a surprise. It was the most expensive thing I've ever owned, and and all of that. Uh, I mean, I asked her to marry me, having talked to her about a wedding in, in the future and feeling fairly confident she would say yes, but still nervous a little bit. So I asked her to marry me in February, and uh, that November we were married. And I want to talk about the, the life that I lived between that historical moment of bending my knee, asking for her name and her hand in marriage, right? Say, will you be my wife? And she says, I will, Right? And then I look towards the future, um, the date that we picked in November, where she will actually say, I do. And the life that I lived in between this historical moment and this future moment began to shift and change for me. Not to overstate this, but after she said yes, things changed for me. I was living on my own. I decided to move back in with my parents, maybe much to their chagrin. We can ask them. They're sitting right there. To save a little money for our house, right? I moved back in to save some money. I stopped going out with a lot of my friends. Bro, why don't you come out with us anymore? I'm like, because I'm getting married soon, son. I just don't have time to hang out with you guys anymore. This sounds strange, but some of my habits changed. I started to to eat a little differently. (laughs) Had a tux to fit into in the fall, right? (laughs) I had all of these changes were happening to me. 
And it was based on these two things, the thing that happened in the past and the thing that would happen there in the future. And, and I make mention of that to point to what Paul is sort of driving home today in 1 Corinthians 15. He's been talking to the Corinthian church for some time about the true nature of the gospel, what the gospel truly is. And he's been talking about how, uh, we did this last week, so you have to go back and listen to the podcast, so I won't repeat it all, but the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and he died for our sins, according to the scriptures, he says, that he was buried in the grave and he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures, and then he uh, um, appeared to other people so that people could know that this, in fact, had taken place. And Paul's mentioning that this historical fact that Jesus Christ had died for them and was raised back to life pointed to a future event that we believe as Christians that when Christ returns for his second coming, all of those in Christ will also rise from the dead as well and join him in this future eternity that we get to spend with God forever and ever and ever and ever. So the life of the Christian is marked by an historical event, Christ dying and raising from the dead, and points to a future reality that we too in Christ will rise again from the dead on his second coming. But the in-between space, the, the tension between the, the, the historical event and the future event, is it shaping us? Is it, is it causing us to live like that future event is real or is it not? Part of the problems that the Corinthian church was having is they began to believe some things about the resurrection that were not true. They lived in a Greco-Roman culture, and they had this dualistic idea of the person, which just means this, that there's two parts to every person. There is the soul, and there is the body. They believe the soul to be the good part, right? And the body to be, at best, neutral, and at worst, just bad and worthy to be disposed of. And they just considered death to just be the doorway that opened them up into this spiritual reality of eternity. But they were disembodied spirits that would be living forever. But that is not what the gospel teaches us. We are to be raised again from the dead. But this idea of the resurrection not being true, taught by the culture around them, began to leak into the church and then began to change their opinions on what the gospel was. Began to change their opinion of how they should live their life here and now. And so Paul just comes to them to correct some of that thinking. We started hammering home last night that the resurrection is a true event. It took place, and you can ask people who saw Jesus raised from the dead. But today, Paul does this other type of thing. Um, he begins to talk to them as if their belief that the resurrection doesn't happen is, in fact, true. What if, let's just say, that you don't think the resurrection is true, and let's just start with that as our premise. Okay, that's fine. There is no resurrection of the dead. Then let's see logically where that will leave us here and now. And Paul, in his brilliance, takes them on a journey that I think would benefit us if we would listen to his words today. So I want to read the words today, and then you can um, follow along on the screens. And um, I have so much to say, I don't even know where I'm going to go. So uh, let's start here in verse 12 um, and see what uh, Paul says to the Corinthian church. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, he said, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. 
And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, again, their premise, not his, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and then if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep, those who have died before you, in Christ they too have perished. If in Christ we have hope or hoped in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Or of all people most to be pitied. Verse 20, but... In fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive again. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming or second coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I'm an underliner in my Bible, and I underline that part. That's an important part, and we'll come back to that if we have time. I'm just saying, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in, in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is ex accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Paul, I have no idea what you're saying here. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean? by being baptized on behalf of the dead. We, we'll talk about that in a minute. He says, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Good question. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you or by my boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, O Lord, I die every day for this. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? And he quotes Isaiah the prophet, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We've heard that, right? But do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. How many people have heard that from someone they know? <laughs> Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. He is pointing to this reality, this the space in between the historical fact that took place and the death and the resurrection and the future hope of resurrection. And because of their disbelief in that, this whole thing like a thread is unraveling before them and their very lives are not being morphed. Their very lives are not being changed. Their very lives are not those lived with hope and faith. Because of that, he says, you're living as though you can do whatever you want. Debauchery, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter how we live now, right? They're, like, they're not even living like changed people. And Paul wants them to wake up from that. It would be my desire that we would wake up from that as well. My prayer this morning has been that by no persuasive speech of my own, that God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, would come and make the resurrection of Christ real to you. 
that he would make the future resurrection of all people at his second coming real to you. And, and those truths would change what you think. I heard this once said by a pastor, and I'll repeat it to you now, knowing it's not mine, so it's not the best metaphor, because mine would be perfect, I'm just saying. <laughs> but he said, I want to picture yourself climbing Mount Everest. And you've got all the gear on, you're making your way up, and at some point in the middle of your journey, somebody comes to you, a, a person from the future. What? It's kind of a weird thing. And they have this picture of you standing on top of Mount Everest, smiling with the big panoramic view behind you. And it's a true picture. This is a picture of you having scaled the top of the highest mountain in the world. Let me ask you this question. Knowing that you've done that on your journey on the way up, does it change the way you climb? Every time you want to give up, do you stop? No, because your future reality is that you've made it. And it does something to you. It changes the way you live. It gives you a tenacity, a perseverance, a something that's missing from our lives. To not have hope in the resurrection is to not have hope in this life at all, is what Paul would say. But I get ahead of myself. So let's pray together and ask God to show up in this place. God, we thank you for everything that you do. God, I ask for help today. I ask that you come and you speak to your people through the power of your word Quicken my mind. Help me to say the words that you want to say. And I ask that, God, you, you move in the hearts and the minds of the people in the room here. We know that you're the one who can lead us into all truth, and so we ask for your help. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm, I'm sort of amped up right now. I don't know if you can tell that. I'm trying to calm it down a little bit, but my... My hands are a little shaky. It's quite possible that it's the four cups of coffee I've already had this morning. <laughs> but I also know that sometimes this happens to me when the Holy Spirit is in the room, and it's like, eee. So at this point, I feel released to, to perform for you. <laughs> it's so awesome. Like, I, I, I just talk, and the Holy Spirit does what he does. Yes? Okay. So um, anyways. So Paul again begins with this idea. That, um, that they're saying Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. Verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. Now listen, they have believed this at least. He's already said this last week when we talked. He says, you have professed and believed that Christ died for you and raised from you. And they have ascribed to that. He says, I believe that. But for whatever reason, they don't think that anyone else would raise from the dead. That's the interesting thing. Like they somehow have given permission for Jesus to raise, but not anyone else, which is very strange. And he points that out. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of anyone else in the dead. And he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So let's start with your premise. So if you don't think anyone raises from the dead, so there it is. But the issue is this, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching, everything we proclaim to you and to the world around all of us is in vain. Your faith in believing in those things is in vain, he says. They're, it's pointless, he would argue. Verse 15, he goes on to say, we would even be people found to be misrepresenting God. He says, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, logically, let's follow that. It just means that everything we're saying about who God is, is a lie. I don't care how, 
how, how many times you tell your friends that God is good and how great God has been for you and all of these issues in your life. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then even those things aren't true. He'll go on to say that your faith in these things becomes futile, inept, unavailable, unavailable, or un, with no ability to help you in your life. It becomes, what's he say here? Verse 15, we're misrepresenting God because we testified that God raised him, raised the Christ, who he did not raise, if it's true that they are not raised. But he says, sorry, there it is, verse 14, that our faith, sorry, that our faith is in vain. It's futile, verse 17. It can't help. I was picturing somebody trying to put water in their gas tank in their car, thinking that's somehow helpful. <laughs> and we all know that's not going to help at all. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then it is futile, and you are still in your sins. Hear this. To disbelieve that future event of the resurrection has the net effect of disbelieving the historical event of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. If you don't believe that dead people are raised, then you're disbelieving everything that's already taken place, which again has the ultimate result that means this, that Christ in fact hasn't died for you, which is why he says you're still in your sins. Lord help. If we, if we refuse to believe that you and I will one day be raised from the dead, what we're saying is we don't believe that God raised him from the dead either. And if he hasn't been raised from the dead, then he didn't die for our sins. And if he didn't die for our sins, then we're still in our sins, which just means that our life is forever stuck this way. There is no help for us. There is no hope for us. Do you see how this hinges upon the resurrection? Know this. This is not a secondary issue for us. We believe this and fully accept the gospel, or we disbelieve it, and we have nothing to believe in. All the things we say about God would not be true. All the things we say about what he's done in our life is not even true. You are still in your sins. Verse 18, then he says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And he's not even saying this is a reality for you people who are still alive, but all of your family members and friends who have passed away, even if they were believers, he says at one point, if there is no resurrection, then Christ hasn't raised from the dead, then you're still in your sins. And those people who died in Christ were still in their sins, which means that they too will perish one day. And if Christ isn't coming back to raise everyone from the dead, then those people are lost. I love how Paul uses that euphemism, those who have fallen asleep. I think there's two things at work here. I think he's wanting us to see that the people who have fallen asleep have, um, we need to understand our death to be but a temporary state. I mean, how many people, um, when they take their first breath every morning, thank God for the breath that they've been given, Right? I mean, I don't, there's no shame if you don't. It doesn't matter. I mean, right? I'm just, I'm one of those guys. I wake up most days, my first thought is of Jesus, and I'm thankful for who he is as a person. I'm, I'm just going to say this, that every night when we lay down at night, the next morning we have the opportunity of a resurrection. Our sleep and wake cycle is just a reminder to us that God will eventually raise us from the dead. And Paul uses this euphemistically to point to that reality. Sleep is but temporary for us. Death is but temporary for us. Do you hear this? 
Much like toddlers who don't want to take their nap. They just want to live, 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 live. Like we, we miss, we miss this opportunity to see this. But Paul reminds them of this. That those who have fallen asleep in Christ, yes, it's a temporary sleep, if you will. But when Christ returns, all the dead will raise and be with him forever. If there is a resurrection from the dead. They disagree in that. He says in verse 19, If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. This has been argued that this is the reason why um, so many of us Christians look towards the future. Like we look forward to heaven or whatever the future eternity looks like for us. Um, I think that's okay to do. I'm just saying you're missing out on a whole good life here and now. Like, if you think God came to save you by sending his son Jesus to die on a cross just so you can suffer through, bite your tongue, right, and just die (laughs) so you can get to heaven, you're missing it. That future reality of the resurrection should shape this life here and now. It does mean that Christ has delivered us from our sins. And if that means that we have been delivered from our sins, it means we have a new nature, which means we're not driven by the desires of sinful things. We're driven by desires of righteous things and holy things. And yet you and I sometimes have a disagreement in our lifestyle and what that looks like. We believe we can live righteous, but we somehow don't. I think it's just because we sometimes have lost our understanding of our true identity in Jesus Christ. And you can see how they've lost it because they don't believe in the resurrection. Well, I didn't plan on saying this, but do we believe in the resurrection? <laughs> I'll go first. I do. I do. And if that's true, then, then his death is true and his burial is true. And, all, and then I am delivered from my sins and I actually can be holy as God himself is holy because that is the command. Now, we might not live the commands of God perfectly, but I promise you we can live them faithfully, yes? We can strive towards them and by the power of God's spirit inside of us, he can modify and change and better our lives here and now. But only if the resurrection is true. It's the the hinge pin. I've said that already. It's everything revolves around it. It's the stake in the yard you tie the big dog to. (laughs) Right? It's all tied to that. Try as we may and try as we might, we cannot pull loose from that pin in the yard. Christ has been raised from the dead. We celebrate this every Easter. I wonder why we don't celebrate it every day. I heard someone once say, I don't know why this isn't the opening news segment at 10 o'clock every night. This just in. (laughs) He is risen. (laughs) Right? It's a real thing. And we do this sometimes unintentionally when we talk about what God has done for us. Oh, yeah, Christ died for me because I'm a sinner. And I believe that. The Bible tells me that I'm a sinner. Christ died for me. And, you know, he saved me and this and that. And we skip right over the resurrection. I say that not to bring shame or condemnation, but just to point to the reality that sometimes we slip too. Is it our culture pointing to something in us? Are we too scientific to believe in people who are dead actually raising back to life? Has our thought become too modern to dismiss all of this ancient idea 
of people raising from the dead. I don't know. Something almost subconsciously causes us to skip over the resurrection issue when that is the most important thing. Yes? And to live a life that doesn't believe in that, Paul would say, is a pitiful life. But verse 20, he says, there is a fact, and it is this. Christ has been raised from the dead. And this is an ultimate fact. And this is what he talked about last week when we broke that down. He says he appeared to other people. You can go ask them. Okay, this is a real thing that's taken place. And he says that Christ, in fact, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let me read this again, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Know this, he is not saying Christ has been raised from death. I used to think that way. And I know it sounds like semantics, but it's totally different. Christ has not been raised from death. He's been raised from the dead. Let me say it this way. Christ has been raised from among the dead. Of all those who have died, Christ, the first fruits, the first one ever to have been raised from the dead. Now, First fruits, it, it's a, an Old Testament idea, and I won't go into much detail here. You can, you can do that on your own. Just look on the internet, because everything on the internet is true. <laughs> but the idea of first fruits, it just means this. The Jewish people, every season when the harvest came, they were required to go out and harvest the first little bit of the field. They weren't allowed to harvest any more of the field. They weren't allowed to cook from the field, eat from the field. They couldn't sell any of the field. They had to take the first harvest, a little bit of harvest from the field, and go to the temple, take it to the priest, and offer it to God as a sacrifice. They would wave it before God, giving thanks to him for everything that, that he has done. And in so doing, there's a belief that this little piece of the harvest that they brought to God will be multiplied many times over by faith, if they bring this first thing to God. Long story short, Jesus Christ is the, the first of the harvest uh, of the dead. You hear me? He's not raised from death. He's raised from among the dead. Of all the dead that exist, and there's lots. Christ has been raised first with hope and expectation that there will be many more. That ultimately God will spring forth a harvest and all the dead would raise would be God's desire. This is, the, um, this is the proof that God has vindicated Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. It always sounded strange that God's son would go to a cross and die and be buried in a grave. And you know, we go into the back story that all people have sinned and because we've sinned, we deserve death. But Christ took death upon himself, whatever, and he sacrificed himself. But the thing that stuck with me is that God accepted his sacrifice, and we know he accepted his sacrifice because he raised his son from the dead. Jesus Christ did not raise himself, right? God vindicated him and delivered him from death, the first of many who will be raised again. He says, verse 21, For as by a man came death, 
And by another man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Which men, he says here, verse 22, for as in Adam all die. That's where death came in. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, death swept into the world on the heels of that sin. God created a humanity with Adam, and because of their sin, death attached itself to that humanity, to that man. But a second man has come, a second Adam, if you will, has come, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he has brought with him resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. There is, in fact, a new humanity being made in Christ Jesus, one that lives forever. And I love how Paul makes the distinction that it was through a man that this took place. So hear this. Two things were mediated by people on the earth. Death was mediated to the world through Adam, and life is given back to the world through the man, Christ. Jesus, just because he was the son of God, did not get some divine pass on overcoming death. God used his power to raise him from the dead. And in so doing, in our belief in that a new humanity, a new uh, race of people, if you will, have been made in him. And in this kingdom where Adam lives and rules and reigns, sin and darkness and death exist. But in the new kingdom that is in Christ Jesus, there is no more pain. There is no more suffering. There is no more tears. There is no more, any more of those things. The lungs of a cancer patient who dies in Christ Jesus will breathe again and again, and their scans from that point forward will always be clear. That there will be healing and restoration and all of that in the resurrected body that is in the person that Christ raised, which pushes back on the Corinthian idea that the body doesn't mean anything. Let me ask you this. If, if God didn't care about the body, if the body wasn't necessary for the resurrected life, if whatever, if he was just looking for the soul, that's the important part, then can we really call it salvation? Let me say this. If a person is so broken in sickness and death, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's something else, maybe disease, I don't know what it is, and they die, and in Christ they get to raise again, but God leaves the body behind, that's not salvation, that's escapism. <laughs> He's just pulling him out of that broken thing. A real redemption looks like he fixes the person's soul and fixes their body, places them in a new kingdom where they rule and reign with Christ forever. That's what Christ has done. <sighs> That's why the resurrection is so important for us. It tells us that there's something significant about our bodies that God is going to... God, I help. Ask, for, ask for help. And it says, each person in his own order, Christ being the first fruits... Then at his coming, his second coming, those who belong to Christ will also be raised from the dead. This is our hope. This is the, the future reality that we live in and if we don't, and should shape our current reality. And if we don't believe in that, then we can't change this here. 
There's a bunch of stuff, verses 24 through 28. Uh, I don't have six weeks to go through all of that. There's a lot of stuff in there. But let me just point to this verse 26. It says that the last enemy that Jesus will overcome when he establishes his kingdom is he will put to death, death. (laughs) The last enemy to be destroyed, he says, is death. And ultimately, God has overcome the result of sin, which just means that all sin has been eradicated as well. I'm out of time, so I'm, I'm going to skip a whole bunch of stuff. So I apologize for that. The whole end of that chapter speaks to some really great stuff. Um, basically, Paul says your life should look different if you believe in the resurrection. So let's just, let's just receive that from the Lord, that our life should look different if we believe in the resurrection. Okay? So, but let me just close with this idea. Um, in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, there's a story of, um, of two armies that come together to do battle. And you don't have to have any background in the church or any Bible understanding to have heard the story before. Many of you know the story and you'll get it when you get when I say it, okay? But there's two armies. There's the army of the Philistines, God's enemies. And whenever I say Philistines in this church, you're allowed to boo, right? You remember that? <laughs> so the Philistines are on one side of a valley on a hill, right? The Philistines, boo, right over there. And God's people, the Israelites are on the other. No, I didn't say cheer, but that's a good idea. I, th- I think it's appropriate is what I'm saying. Yes, well done. That's well done. So these two armies are encamped over a valley, and every day for 40 days, one of the members of the Philistine army, a giant, his name was Goliath. Heard of him? Goliath would march down into the valley and shout up at the Israelites. And he's saying something like this. Rather than our whole armies doing battle against each other and much carnage and bloodshed, How about this? I'll come down and I'll fight your best warrior. Just send that guy out. And if he defeats me, then we will submit to you. But if I defeat him, then you submit to us. Especially, why shed all this blood? Let's just have it out. Mano a mano, if you will. One to one. And Goliath taunts and taunts and taunts. And you know the story. A young shepherd boy by the name of David comes out frustrated that no one else will fight this fool. And he walks out to defeat Goliath with one simple thrown stone and taking stone's throw and taking Goliath's own sword. He cuts off Goliath's head and kills him. And everyone cheers and shouts. And it's a great story from the Old Testament, but it's more than a story. See, inside the story was the, that reality. If, if, if the one person defeated Goliath, then the whole army will have been, the victory will have been applied to everyone. Is what I'm trying to say. So when David goes down and defeats Goliath, his victory is then applied to everyone else in the army. They, they have been freed and liberated from the ensuing battle that would take place. And although some preachers over many years have taught the story of David and Goliath as a metaphor for you and I facing the giants in our life, and we can overcome those things and garbage, 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 garbage. The story of David and Goliath is not about us. <laughs> it's about Jesus. Jesus is the David who marches down into the valley. 
and defeats an enemy so great that we have no hope in defeating it on our own. The Goliath in the story is death itself. Jesus goes low into the ground and defeats our enemy for us. And because of that and through faith in him, then we can apply that victory onto our own lives. That's this story. This is the ultimate rally that that Paul is driving towards. This is why the resurrection matters so much. For some of you, your toil and your struggle is so heartfelt. It is so um, genuine and yet so unnecessary. So unneeded. It's to, it's to run down the hill and try to do battle on your own after the, everyone's already left for the day. Like the armies have packed up and moved on and you're still running around waving a sword at truly nothing. Look at him go, they say. Look at him try, they say. Wow, look at that effort. He has not stopped for six years, that man is fighting and fighting and fighting. I'm just saying, it's just unneeded. The victory has already been won by Jesus. And if you don't believe it, God raised him from the dead. That's the receipt. If you don't believe in the purchase, just look to the resurrection as the receipt. It's the proof. It's the down payment. The first of many to be raised from the dead. Yes? All right. So I feel like that was all over the place. I don't feel any way about that, just so you know. Because I trust God and I believe in him. And he'll do everything he can to help us see this to be true. So I just want to pray for us. God, make us people who believe Make us people who, who truly believe that, that there's a moment in history that you died for us, went into a grave, and you raised Jesus from the dead, that you've done that, God. There's that moment that took place in history, and there's a moment in the future when you come again, and you will raise all of us who are dead in Jesus, and we look forward to that, God. Make us people who believe that to be true so that we can see um, the effects of that change, God, in our life here and now. That ultimate reality should should, uh, change us here. (laughs) And God, I thank you for that. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, his sacrifice for us. And God, I pray that more people would understand that your love for, for all of us can be best seen in Jesus. His willingness to lay down his life, even when we were still sinners, even when we didn't believe, even when we were fighting for the other army, so to speak, Lord, you have come and defeated um, our, our enemy before us and we have victory in Jesus. So we just thank you for that. May we see all of that in Christ Jesus. God, we ask that you bless our time together. In his name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. We hope this message was an encouragement to you. 
Walking in faith can be difficult, but we are constantly working to remind people of the truth and love of Jesus, and we want you to be a part of that. So head over to our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram, or connect with us online at renaissancedecatur.org and help us make a difference in the heart of our city.